Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. All right, Cohen Wade. Yes, hi. We finally meet. How you? Uh, this is Mitch Champion from Journey of an Esthete podcast. Hi, Mitch. Sorry about that. Yeah, I just uh, uh, missed the call. And uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you mean yeah? Um, but um, now it works for me. If uh, if it works for you as well, it's working. We're talking. You can hear my voice. I can hear yours. And uh, I'll um, I'll do a little uh, blurb up front, spoken if you don't mind. And, um, I have a lot of different kinds of people on our show, uh, you know, uh, mostly artists, you know, musicians, writers. Um, occasionally, people like your, I have people like yourself if they're really good at what they do um, in terms of uh, communication. And I think the reason why you're on the show is I was originally a fan of Culturally Determined. And that's, I think, the main way I know, I know you is from that show, right, on Blogging Heads. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, so the, that's one reason. And also I really like, I, I, I consider being a host of a show an art form, and I consider it something that you, one can do well or not so well. And I, I'm, I'm really struck by your, your even-handedness, your civility, your wit, your intelligence, and I love the way that you interact with the guests. And, and that alone would be enough for you to be on our show. But in addition... To that, I like the way you talk about aesthetic and political topics that are topical, uh, but talk about them in a way that's not alienating, that's relatable to a general audience, and that's also very informative and educational. So those are some of the some of the qualities that I really like about what you've been doing. Uh, well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say. Um, generally, on our show, we like to do a personal bio uh, of the guests and sort of figure out, you know, how they come to do the work that they're doing. So in your case, um, I'm not an expert. I don't know a lot about your background. So do you mind talking a little bit about uh, your story with uh, communication and doing shows and writing, anything that comes to your mind that, that we should know? Or uh, Sure. So um, let's see. So on the, you know, on the personal side, I grew up in suburb in northern New Jersey, um, Mm-hmm. And you know, had sort of, I don't know, more or less uh, <laughs> mainstream cultural interest, but was in the comic books and stuff like that as a kid. But um, mm-hmm. uh, and was uh, in, went to Yale University, was an English major there. Interesting. And um, was a fan of this website, Blogging TV, that was um, founded in two thousand five, and. I, after graduating, I graduated in 2005 also, and after college, I was um, doing freelance jobs and other stuff, looking for full-time work, and I would listen to uh, Blogging Head uh, sort of in the background when I was doing graphic design work and other sort of random things, and um, then... They uh, were looking to expand and were hiring freelancers, and so I uh, was hired in 2007 there uh, as a freelancer and was more or less there for um, with a couple of uh, gaps for the rest of my, uh, you know, professional career, and um, 
I uh, was so I was behind the scenes in the editorial world there. Okay. Uh, for a long time, interesting. and interesting, didn't really see myself. At, I I saw myself as a behind the scenes type person. Hmm. Uh, for a long time, and then sort of had the chance to start doing some things in front of the microphone of the camera mm-hmm. and uh, after you know, seven or eight years of being behind the scenes. Um, so it was not something that I planned on doing in, in various ways. <laughs> and um, when I you know started working there, podcasts were, you know, the term podcast wasn't widely known, um, and well, the blog itself is sort of a proto-podcast they, they at were, that point. Would it be, hold that thought, would it be fair to say they were in an embryonic or infancy-type stage, you know, then I would imagine, right? Um, there's, yeah. They're certainly not what they are now, but it, it fascinates me that your being a host is sort of accidental and that you were more... Uh, well, I, I'll come back to this. Uh, well, one of the things that strikes me about your show is how intellectually curious and sophisticated it is. And I can't help but think that maybe Yale plays a role in that. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but you bring a lot of learning to the show and I appreciate that. But um, would it be fair to say that this is sort of a new thing for you? Do you had planned on doing more um, kind of research scholarly type of work rather than hosting or rather than communicating? Or, or was it something that you sort of always in the back of your mind thought, well, I can do this too, or... Um, do you understand my question? So was it was it more uh, something you felt? Yeah. Well, I, I first I definitely did not see my you know when I was hired at Blogging Ads I was you know uh, do, uh, doing a behind the scenes editorial role. I definitely did not see myself as the type of person who would be you know playing the role of host or anything like that. I think I was sort of naturally shy and nervous and mm-hmm. wouldn't uh, you know was you know. In, in, in class, you know, in, in high school and college, I would raise my hand and participate, but I would often, um, you know, be nervous before speaking publicly and stuff like that. Um, so it definitely wasn't something I was um, aiming for as being sort of like a performer or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of, I don't know, yeah, kind of fell into it and found <laughs> that I was at least okay at it. Um, Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think I sort of always saw myself as uh, like a generalist, and uh, had did not have any particular expertise, but had curiosity mm-hmm. and and enough background knowledge to be able to pursue things. But was usually more interested in you know being the one uh, asking. Uh, asking the questions instead of giving the answers or, or something along those lines. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. Maybe so. Maybe it's just a confluence of factors, right? I mean, I and certainly you certainly are, uh, have the learning and knowledge. So, were you hired by Robert Wright when you first started? Was it mainly was what that was, and he was sort of the person that was in charge of blogging hits at that time, or would it have been? Yes, it, it was Robert Wright. Um, the, the site was founded by. Bob Wright, Mickey Cows, and a you know computer program en- engineer named Greg Dingle, mm-hmm. and um, and Bob sort of took over running it pretty early on, and Mickey, <laughs> Mickey sort of 
receded. Um, well, we know we know what happened to him. We could either talk, bring that up, or not bring that up, or table it for later. <laughs> yeah. but, but I but I am interested in your experience at Yale. Were you at Yale uh, post Harold Bloom or pre or what? You, you're pre- uh, well. It was it was it was during, and I I uh, audited one class from him. But um, yeah, and I yeah, so I was there oh one to oh five. Um, his, I mean, that was, he, he was certainly very famous at that time, but I think he had sort of, um, you know, he called himself like a department of blood or something along those lines. Like he had left the English department and was in this other department called humanities. And I think sort of did his own thing and, um, was, yeah, you know, sort of, it, the most both the, like the most famous right like person who was teaching literature there but also like not like embedded in the uh like he wasn't in the english department at all so well, um, I, i'm aware that there was tension and as you know I'm, I'm a big fan of his in part i say in part because of course i disagree with him about as many things as i admire in him i mean my, our show is after all called aesthete journey of an aesthete Harold Bloom called, famously called himself an aesthete, I think, in a both the Paris Review interview in the mid-90s. And that was actually one of the reasons I named my podcast when I named it, actually. So there is that connection. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, comic books, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm much more, shall we say, egalitarian and diverse in what I think is valuable than, than, he, than he was. Um, <laughs> right. I believe I was... I remember he he wrote this uh, op-ed or review for the New York Times Book Review or something about Harry Potter. Oh yeah, um, in, in which he called it like you know a penny dreadful or something like that. That may have been right before I started college or something. Um, yeah, so I mean he was you know the elitist of all elitists. Um, he was. And, you know what's really more interesting is that his former students are. Like Camille Paglia, who's a student of his, again, is more like myself, I probably, or perhaps you, in that uh, she's, you know, was a, was a fan of Charlie's Angels, the TV show, and, you know, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra, things that I'm sure Harold Bloom would have been, things of which he would have been dismissive. But, of course, Perry Potter was the more, more notorious takedown of him but what was your i mean not i don't want to spend too much too much time on him unless you think it's that we should what was your what did you glean from him as a teacher a figure a thinker uh that it influences you now or not or i'm just a well well i i only i only audited a, a single class he taught on shakespeare's uh tragedies and romances okay. when i was a senior and i was writing I, you know, the requirement of the English major was you had to either write an independent essay or take a senior seminar. So I would take a seminar uh, on Shakespeare mm-hmm. uh, taught by David Quint, um, who I believe is still there um, at Yale. And I sort of thought, and I realized it was my last chance, you know, uh, first semester, senior year to, you know, see Bloom, you know, see the great man. See him and Bloom. so I... Um, yeah, exactly. I, I went to like the first class, and uh, it was a seminar uh, that he was teaching. And, af- and afterwards, I just went up to him and asked him if I could, if it would be okay if I audited the class. And he said something like, you know, yes, my child, or yes, my dear, or something. Yeah, yeah. And so I, um, I attended 
uh, every subsequent class, but uh, didn't uh, write a paper and was also way too scared to participate in any way because he was a very intimidating presence. And the classes would generally take the form of um, him asking a question about the week's test. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the students would sort of nervously like raise their hand and offer an answer, and then he would say, "No, that's wrong," mm-hmm. and he would, you know, uh, monologue for like fifteen or twenty minutes, oh. and then ask another question, <laughs> and sort of the thing would repeat itself. So it was mainly him, you know, talking, and he was definitely listening to what the students were saying, but you know, he definitely could just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and so I and so I was way too intimidated to ever, you know, even raise my hand <laughs> in the class. And I felt like since I wasn't really taking the class, uh, that sort of justified that. But so it was I don't know, it was more like a kind of wild experience than um Well I, I it's than there were specific things that I, like I, you know, imbibed from him. Well, it's it's interesting because I guess I'm a little bit opposite you personality style. I guess I'm more extrovert. I'm certainly not shy. I'm, I've, I've approached, you know, I'm a pianist and I've, I've approached in my life great musicians uh, who a lot of people would be intimidated by just to glean their, you know, famous musicians just to sort of, uh, just why not, sort of unafraid. But mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I'm, I'm very accepting of different personalities. I think there's all kinds of ways to be in the world. And I certainly think introversion and shyness are not, you know, and not to be pathologized, you know, and of course, I don't know if you thought this way about it, but I've often thought of introversion and shyness as actually having other skills and strengths um, that come with those qualities. Um, uh, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's uh, the skills that you brought to blogging heads when you were first hired. Maybe you were doing certain kinds of research for Bob Wright or the folks there that, who knows, you would probably know more than, of course, I would, but <laughs> that's getting too far ahead, but I, but so you, you right? Yeah, but you. Well, there, there might be something in you know, like being more of a listener than a, a naturally more of a listener than a talker myself. Um, and what I was doing behind the scenes for years was listening to the episodes and writing the titles and the headlines and the stuff that would appear on the homepage, and you know, trying to come up with guests to talk to people and potential pairings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think naturally I was more sort of a editorial, like someone who would respond to someone else's work and like, mm-hmm. rather than be the instigator of the work myself. Um, it's that once again, sort of plays with, you know, that I, I didn't intend to be like a talking head type person. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yet you were doing all this research, and I guess that I feel that's helped your your show, and you've staked out. It's interesting because I remember I, I'm I'm 54. I'm a different different generation, and so I remember Robert Wright in as a figure, big figure in the mid 90s, and mm-hmm. a kind of a famous figure in a way because of debates on evolution, evolutionary psychology. And right. that at that time, I was and remain friendly to to evolutionary psychology, actually. Um, having said that, I also think a lot of our life is culturally determined, right? So that's your... That's your <laughs> so I've always always uh, toyed with the idea of combining these two opposing ideas and maybe 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 something somewhere in the middle or kind of a, a, some something... I, mean, I thought I'd mention that because, of course, your, your boss, Rob, Robert Wright, was, um, 
in the forefront of all that, right? I mean, he was kind of, you know, really interested in, in those ideas. And I don't know. Did you talk with him about those same matters much? Or was it more, I don't know if that would have come up or not. Or I guess it depends on the show. Well, yeah. So um, I wasn't super familiar with Bob before I encountered him on blogging head, basically. And I, and so I mentioned Mickey Kev before. He's sort of become like my like sort of a semi like half joke, half not joke, like online nemesis. But, um, oh. but his, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I troll him in various ways when, when possible, because I really sort of decide the political turn he's taken. But anyway, I, I got, I first became aware of blogging heads because I started oh. reading Slate when I was in college My- uh, around, you know, the, I think the 2004 election was when, I started reading Slate for whatever reason, yeah. and and he had, and his blog was there, um, Cow Files, and you know he yeah. he's an important figure as one of the first um, political bloggers. And yeah. since he started, and he was he's been friends with Bob since the New Republic days of the late eighties or early nineties. Right, right. And so um, when they started blogging it together, the uh, Mickey would include you know, links to the conversations in his, um, uh, on his blog. And so that's how I sort of got into it. And I, so I was not the type of person who like as a, you know, uh, 14 year old was like reading back issues of the new Republic yeah. or that national review or commentary, anything like that. Right. Um, that was, that was not my world. And so I sort of like <laughs> got introduced to that world through, the blogosphere and right. early blogging head stuff. And yeah, so then, but you know, I, I definitely absorbed a lot of Bob Wright kind of thinking <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. And, you know, the, the title of culturally determined in some ways is just sort of a pun, but in, mm-hmm. in other ways, because in other ways I'm sort I think I myself is more of, sort of a materialist um, oh, and okay. and thinking about how what really and that's more of the, of the Bob Wright <laughs> tradition and oh. and what ultimately matters you know like material traditions sort of based on superstructure stuff but like I said I sort of like you know didn't know all this stuff before was just a simple English major and was reading Shakespeare and stuff so a lot okay. of the political <laughs> things that sure um I learned about, I sort of observed, absorbed, um, from that early era. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little confused. So you're saying that you were, you certainly have an English background, artistic background, aesthetics, right? But you were also interested in, in, in current affairs and news. And I, and, and on your show now you have many strong discussions of politics. Um, are, do you see your projects as sort of combining everything and sort of saying, well, why have these boundaries? I'll have a I'll have a, a, a journalist on my show, but I'll also have somebody who wrote a novel uh, on my show. Is that is that kind of that's kind of the, would you say that's a through line or something you were interested in, in doing? Or yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in the interplay of culture and politics. And when I give sort of the description of the podcast, I say it's an interview show about culture and politics, and. Um, I'm, I'm interested in 
both those topics and places they overlap. Um, at the same time, I'm sort of like, I don't know, a style of criticism evolved over the past 10 years or so that's like, here's like, you know, <laughs> sort of taking, you know, some pop culture objects and, you know, saying like it has good politics or it has bad politics or here's the real problem with, you know, Spider-Man 2 is yeah. <laughs> XYZ. And so I don't generally like that kind of stuff. Um, and so I try to avoid that. And so some, you know, some episodes are purely about some cultural objects and I'm not trying to, you know, like apply a Marxist lens to, yeah. you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like that. Right, right. Um, but other times there's some, you know, cultural um, object or event that, I don't know, that, that seems to, you know, that interests me because, yeah, there's, there's it's somehow in between mm-hmm. the two realms. I mean, the, the thing that, when I started the show, the, the thing that I was like, had no interest in it at all was sort of like horse race stuff hmm. or like inside the beltway type stuff. And yeah. I, when I started, I was thinking it would be much more purely just kind of culture stuff because yeah, circa 2015, when I started it, you know, blogging heads had like six other shows that were doing wonky, you know, here, here's what, ha- yeah, here's what was going on in the past 48 hours in politics. And so I was like, well, I'll stick. This will be sort of like the art section mm-hmm. of the thing. And, you know, the, the 2016 election, of course, um, scrambled a lot of things it did. in that world in various ways. I mean, it really did. I mean, we could talk about how it's affected you and affected me. I mean, I, you know, my, I mean, I, my response to the, the, the evil and insanity, if I could put it that way, of Trumpism was mm-hmm. to go further into aesthetics and thinking that maybe having an aesthetics podcast that brings everybody together, almost kumbaya style. Could be one, one, <laughs> one response. I don't know, but that was one of the was that wasn't the only reason, but it was a factor. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I had been thinking about the arts for long before Trump, and certainly long before even the internet. I mean, I you know I'm, after all, I was reading Harold Bloom in in the nineties, so certainly that's a long, <laughs> long time to be thinking about it. But you describe yourself as sort of politically. How would you describe your politics if you had to designate it? Because it's not. Um, 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 clearly definable in your show, which maybe is to your credit. Mm-hmm. But you say you describe uh, yourself as a materialist. Do you mean in the sense of a Darwinian sense, or do you mean in this in the sense of um? In well, sense of uh, okay, you know, in the I I sort of still think of myself as like a Obama Democrat. Oh, and okay, okay. In terms of past political terms, and there's. Yeah. The scene in the movie Get Out, where the father says, um, "You know, I, I would I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have," and then it's revealed that he's like secretly evil and is stealing the bodies of like black people to put elderly white people's souls in their minds to them or something, and so it became a, a joke. But I, I sort of thought, "Oh yeah, I, I like I was basically aligned with Obama on both things." And the last time I was very excited about a politician was. Um, uh, 2008 Obama, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of where I would position myself. Um, I see. I see. And so, but I'm definitely interested in left, more left politics, and have a, I've had a lot of people on the show who are socialists, 
yeah. um, because I think, I think they're interesting people and they're right, right. you know usually very smart. Yeah. Um, I, but I don't, I'm, you know, I don't agree with their, um, you know, generally their practical um, political ideas. But um, but yeah, and so yeah, so often people are I don't know, yeah, people are sort of confused about my politics, so they're like, why don't you just like why don't you just embrace Bernie or something? And so you know, a lot of like the way politics unfolds online is very like tribal and you know you you pick one side and then you're totally for it and oh, it's, it's, fighting against it's, it's terrible. I mean, maybe that's why I like your show so much is you resist that. You don't come out. You know, your show, your, your Culture Determined is not a flag-waving show. I mean, you will have, you have Bernie people on your show, or you have, I think, and you, I, I think you've had guests that are much to the left of you, right, I, I, I think, especially if you're... Yeah, you, for sure. Especially if you describe yourself as an Obama Democrat, which might be, um, I don't know, people might hate that for all I know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very, um, politics is a moving target, right, and it's always changing, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah, there's plenty. I mean, be, th- that is not like a cool thing to say that you still like Obama. <laughs> 2022, there's certainly, you know, he deserves a share of blame for the rise of Trump. Um, so that's not great. Um, but yeah, and, and sort of, I don't know, the, the way to market yourself online is to pick a tribe and align yourself with it and then like pick fights with people on the other side yeah. and everyone gets riled up. And so I think that, well, I'm sure there's multiple reasons why the show hasn't gone, you know, hasn't um, gone supernova or something. But one of them is, you know, sort of I'm not on an identifiable team and, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not like carrying a banner for something because I don't know. I generally think like I don't know the answer to a lot of things yeah. and yeah. Well, you're probably like a lot more of us than we would we often admit you're trying to figure things out and you don't, you don't, we don't know. I don't know. I mean, right. I mean, it's kind of, we're all, <laughs> it sometimes it seems to be like we're all in kind of a wilderness, um, uh, of some kind of some sort. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think, I don't know. Um, like, uh, um, I, I still, you know, the, the thing that I take from Shakespeare in terms of like, you know, lessons for real life or, or something, you know, um, the um, fool thinks he's wise, but the wise man knows that he's a fool is something I think about. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, I mean, if you were making confident predictions about things in 2015, 2016, some of which I made publicly and was, you know, became embarrassed about, like, you know, the world is stranger and crazy, you know, crazy things happened. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just, throw up my hands a lot of the time and I'm asking questions and, um, but not, I certainly don't have many answers. Well, I think it's sometimes important to have really good questions, right? I guess questions, I guess questions can be kind of maybe. Questions are definitely important. Another, uh, uh, something that a professor, uh, who's teaching a class on, um, on, uh, Nabokov, uh, Mm. said that, always stuck with me was like, you know, the great novels often don't have an answer. They ask a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you go from there, but any sort of like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm often <laughs> disinclined to say to, for people who are like dogmatic about like, Oh, the, the answer is obviously X. So then, um, you know, you have to go along with that, but I'm not, I don't know. If, if you, 
that were you aware that there was an event within the past couple of weeks, uh, like a conference that was called like Herediton or something like this? Yes. So it was for like people who consider themselves like heretical thinkers and all these people have podcasts. But I'm not like, I don't align myself with them at all. And I'm not like the type of person who, who, um, is like, you know, you have to question the, like, you, you know, when the authorities say X, like you have to say not X. I'm not that type of person. Um, and I'm not like Brett Weinstein, you know, investigating ivermectin or anything like that. But, um, yeah, <laughs> but I have just generally averse to, um, people saying like, yeah, the answer is this and yeah. So forth. Well, I mean, it's, it's a big problem because they're all, well, obviously, um, say, you know, invoking Obama is kind of very powerful. Now you said it's not cruel now. That's interesting. Or... At least among my sort of age cohort, I would say, um, I see. Like there are plenty of people who got disenchanted with Obama. Yeah. And feel like he, you know, didn't fulfill his promise, which, you know, in many ways didn't. Like, you know, he definitely did unify the country or transcend um, racial bounds or blue state, red state bounds or anything like that. But I thought he basically did more or less a decent job. And it's, there's so many ways to go wrong in that office <laughs> that um, sure. you sort of have to give him like a, I thought, you know, sort of a B plus and that's, you know, as good as we can do in, in modern American life. Um, well, but yeah, a, but a B plus might be like an A plus. Like the, history could get so weird that if you give somebody a grade of a B plus, that that could become artificially an A plus given the weirdness of, right? That's kind of another way. Get, you know, yeah, classes. yeah, yeah. And the another thing that I that sort of <laughs> rubs me the wrong way about a lot of online discourse is like the extreme moralism mm -hmm. that, um, especially on social media, gets you a lot of attention. And so, um, yeah, just highly charged moral language or believing that is obvious, that self-evident, that um, you know what you're saying is 100% morally righteous. Like that's a great way to get retweets is to like yeah. talk as if you know you are morally correct and your enemies are moral degenerates and mm -hmm. you know you you can get <laughs> you can really build a platform that way um, and and I don't know someone like Glenn Greenwald would maybe yeah. example that one of my other sort of um, online foes who barely even you know knows who I am but someone who I um, was <laughs> not a fan of before many other people realized they weren't a fan of him. Um, but yeah, you know, he is like, speaks as though he's like Prophet Jeremiah or something, you know, denouncing um, all the, the evil in this world. And, you know, he always seems to know what the correct thing is and, you know, be ready to, da uh, you know, damn <laughs> various people. So the, yeah, that, I, I don't like that, that style at all. And, and, and probably if I, I don't know. Yeah. If I, acted more like that maybe i would have more followers on twitter or something well yeah i, I kind of had you on my show because you're you kind of resisting some of these i think vices um i don't know what you want to call the vices uh, uh oh certainty and tri maybe kind of a, a negative tribalism maybe or mm -hmm. you know, or extremism i do think there's something to a political extremism being a vice i think um 
even yeah it, yeah sorry go ahead well i was going to say even though some of our problems might require extreme transformation uh from a you know i i am on the left so certainly i'm attracted to that but you know there's always a problem i've spoken too much you were going to say something but um well just you know a way to you know i i've made i think i've said this on my show before you know if you have a if you have a tweet that says like X Y Z is the greatest thing in the world, it'll get attention. If you have a tweet that says X Y Z is the worst thing in the world, that'll get attention. If you have, say something like, "Well, I don't really know about X Y Z," why would anyone even retweet that? To begin with, you're barely saying anything that you don't know. You know, um, but that so yeah, this extreme moral certainty gets attention online, and um, and people who have that are able to generate a lot of attention for themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and denouncing someone else in purely moralizing terms is a way to get everyone riled up. And, um, and yeah, a lot of various discourses are like, if you don't do what I say, like the children are going to die. Huh. Um, yeah. And, I, and maybe that, you know, with the pandemic, that's more accurate than it would have been a couple of years ago, that's but, right, that's right. um, yeah, it, it always sort of comes down to, um, you know, <laughs> like, do you like children dying? Like, that's what you like. Um, like that sort of rhetoric. Um, and it comes from left and right. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's interesting, yeah. Getting back to Shakespeare, what do you, have you, if you've seen Joel Roth's uh, Macbeth and Denzel Washington, what's your impressions of that? Because I mean, that's on people's minds, right? Because that was just released. Right. I did, yeah, I, I saw it a couple weeks ago. Um, I, I liked it. Yeah. It was... Um, I thought it should have gotten more disaster nominations that came out today. I was surprised that it didn't even get Best Picture because I thought it was quite good. Um, and it it downplayed the emotion. Um, a lot of it is people, like the the monologues are delivered more in like whispers and mm. there's a, it's more restrained and you can definitely play, you know, Macbeth as sort of a you know, raging madman, which, you know, kind of is. Yeah. Um, and really, until the end, it's it's very, um, yeah. They're definitely playing it at a lower register, um, and, and so I, I quite liked it. And it, you know, it's, it's sort of a homage or pastiche of like Orson Welles and Throne um, of Blood and other Polanski, like yeah, mi- yeah like mid-century things. And the, the, right. the I, I like the silence sort of more than anything else. The way yeah it it looked and how it was sort of purposely artificial. That was my interpretation. Like the sets sort of looked like they were Mm -hmm. like fakey. Um, and yeah, so I thought, I thought it was, it was pretty good. And, um, and yeah, it would, you know, (laughs) as fun as the Macbeth could be, um, I would, uh, yeah, give it basically a thumbs up. Um, I'm a, I'm a Cone, I'm definitely a Cone Brothers fan. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so two of my two of my interests 
coming together. Yep. I was like, okay, I definitely have to venture out and, and see this one. Shakespeare and Cohen. Well, it was an interesting, uh, interesting book uh, by the late, I don't know if you know that, you probably know this writer's work, uh, City of, uh, what is it? Um, it's an English uh, scholar who wrote on uh, screwball comedy. Um, blank, blanking on the comedy of remarriage, you know, he wrote on uh, Frank Capra and um, huh. the winner. I, I don't think I know this one. George Cooker, uh, film critic. Um, well, anyhow, this critic uh, asked who his favorite contemporary filmmaker was, says Joe and Ethan Cohen. Yeah, that's what he said. So that, that's, a, mm-hmm. that's an interesting, um, that's a common, a common, um, uh, it was a common view, right? Of, uh, of um, the comedy of remarriage, and you know that 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 the Cohen brothers are sort of carrying on the this, um, you know, the. Um, film. Yeah, I mean they, you know, they have made like screwball comedies, uh, like personal and you know, homage pastiches of right, you know, like thirty screwball comedies, and *Intolerable Cruelty* would be one of those, and. Um, and yeah, they're they're often sort of taking <laughs> taking a genre and like you know playing with it and playing by its rules and subverting it at the same time. I don't know. I've I, I've been a fan of theirs for a while, and um, Big Lebowski is one of my favorite movies. And it's amazing. Yeah, so I usually I, I I try to see all their stuff. Well, the crit- the critic I'm thinking of is Stanley Cavell. And actually, Stanley Cavell uh, includes a couple of Cohen Brothers films in his in his book. Mm-hmm. So I think he talks about but oh brother, we're out there, out there. Mm-hmm. And I think he talks about it in reference to alongside Dark Victory or Now Voyager. Well, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. book. You should check out that book. It's like a it's like a he pairs like uh, famous philosophers with movies. Mm-hmm. So actually, Emerson gets discussed alongside now Voyager. So there's a, hmm. like a chapter on Emerson's essay experience, and then he starts talking about now, uh, dark, uh, you know, Betty Davis, Paul Heinrich, now Voyager. And I, you know, I <laughs> like that because because um, I think that Emerson's is as important as that movie, right? I think they're kind of equivalent. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the I should check that out. I mean, I, I do often like combining high and low in various ways and you know i did one of the last episodes i did was when i on the blog yesterday before taking the show independent was about the 1986 animated transformers movie yep um which was like one of the obsessions of my childhood and mm-hmm. i have seen it like a thousand times and it's and so it's sort of objectively like a you know pop culture trash and was <laughs> made just to get little kids to buy more toys and they killed off all the previous main characters so that the kids would ask their parents to buy the new toys. Um, but it has these weird, um, like that fact, I don't know, weirdly like makes it compelling in a way, even though it's like a total like commercial product in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I definitely, and like I said, I was into comic books and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, before comic books took over all of pop culture, and when back when yeah they definitely were not you know it was not only were they like not cool they were sort of like nothing in in terms of pop culture um, in the like mid to late nineties. I mean, so that's fascinating to me that you were into, as you said you were into comic books before they became a thing. 
before they became, I guess, an internet phenomenon or, or cool. You said they weren't even uncool. They were not even a thing, which is interesting. See, I don't know. Uh, that fascinates me. That Well, any kind of obsessive, intense interest in something aesthetic fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was... Comic books are certainly... I mean, I'm no expert on comic books. You're more of an expert. So, talk, so that's interesting. So talk more about that because I don't know. Yeah. That's well, I mean, yeah. There, I mean, there were, of course, various times when like comic books or at least comic book characters were very popular, like, you know, the Superman and Batman movies, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 70s and 80s and stuff. Yep. Um, the, the era where I sort of <laughs> came of age with comics, you know, they had sort of, Fallen away. There, I guess there was sort of a boom in the early '90s around, like when there was a, a big general boom in collectibles and stuff, with baseball cards and yeah, and other things. And and that was sort of in the early '90s. Then it sort of it faded away. And Marvel itself, um, either yeah, they did the bankruptcy at some point in the mid '90s, and um, it was yeah, it, it was there were a few superhero movies of that era, but like the the one that was most like the most successful comic movie from that era was like uh blade i don't know if you remember that one with um wesley snipes oh yeah um which they're remaking um now but that but that's like barely you know it, it, it comes from a comic character but it, it's like a vampire movie basically a guy who kills vampires but that was but he was like a, a very third tier character in the marvel universe that's right and yeah so then yeah it was just very marginal and um, and at the time, yeah, so I got into it about the same time the internet started and there was a, um, like a message board on America online where I was talking about X-Men and stuff, uh, circa like 1996. Yeah. But, and then, yeah. So then the, when the X-Men movie came out, which I think was 2000, mm-hmm. that was sort of the first thing where I was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. And I was aging out of it at that point. But, um, mm. Yeah, it's just, it, it is strange that the thing that was, you know, an afterthought is now like the dominant paradigm in global entertainment and everyone is so sick of it because like every, you know, like all these great actors and directors are getting sucked into this world and yeah. and, pe- and yeah, people are totally sick of it. So it, it, is, it is very strange. Well, yeah, people get sick of it, but for reasons that are dubious, right? I mean, you could get sick of anything. But that doesn't mean the thing you're sick of should be, you be should be sick of, right? What I mean is that there's not doesn't mean there's not life there to right. I mean that's really yes, and I and I think the thing is that most at least the Marvel movies, you know, mm-hmm. most of them are actually like decent or, or, or at least yeah. pretty good. There's some thinkers for sure because they made about thirty of them at this point. <laughs> uh, I think people are are sick of sort of its all-consuming nature. And that well, that that's every well, sh- every couple months there's another one that you feel like you people feel like they have to pay attention to. Well, that that sh- I mean, I I have no problem with great film directors criticizing that. Of course, that's that's Martin, and that sense, Martin Scorsese is correct in quotes quote correct in that sense, right? Anytime anything is that overrepresented, then it becomes it loses its uh, right. It kind of a, a currency kind of kind of tanks, right? It goes into the toilet, right? Uh, right, and, and the the, yeah. the the way the fandom has evolved around it, especially online, where a lot of fandoms happen, I think is also 
people who are sort of ambivalent about the whole thing get turned off mm. by the rabbit rabbit fandoms, and that's like a whole other sort of you know area of how the interaction between the fans and the you know content creators, quote unquote, and you know um, it becomes sort of a closed loop. But um, yeah, I think you know there's sort of an, around people my age, a little bit younger. I think there's sort of a nostalgia now for mm-hmm. movies that came out in the nineties before everything was special effects mm-hmm. where like something like the fugitive, oh, uh, yeah. where it's yes. Or I had Max Reed on my show and he did this post about something called nineties dad movies. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a great Which, show. I love that show. It's funny because I don't really have any fondness for those movies. Like I'm actually, I'm a bit of a contrarian. I actually dislike a lot of those movies that some people in your generation really want to love. And we, actually, some of them I really don't like. But, but I can, yeah, it's I, interesting I, because I, the, we people my age or younger would have seen those like on VHS or would have right. been on TV or something uh, because we would have been too young to see it in theaters yeah. and. So there's a definitely a nostalgia aspect to it, but I think yeah, I don't. Have, yeah, I think part of it is they're just they're more human or something because they are not about superhumans, and they don't have, you know, it's not all just special effects. They weren't filmed in front of a green screen and pieced together. Oh yeah, in post production. That's what I was going to say. So even though I really strongly dislike a lot of those movies when they came out, and actually rewatching them might not, I actually might still dislike them. I might say, nah, I'm not gonna. We think this, but I can see in, as as an aesthete, I can see the value of them in a very strange. So yes, from a from a from a classical drama perspective, there might be something there, right? It's kind of like yeah, I'm not I'm not so. My dislike is not such that I won't I won't want to hear somebody talk about it, right? It's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, yeah. So it's it's you know I'm just thinking about this now, but it's you know sort of in the early '90s there was. And the, like sort of a Gen X nostalgia for the seventies, the uh, for stuff like Speed Racer or other sort of like pop culture trashy stuff that came out in the late fifties and early seventies, right. and um, and like so and like Tarantino played played in that like kung fu movies and other things that weren't respected um, much at the time. Yeah. But now, like that, like now that's sort of everything. Is everything like a cartoon or a you know? Um, you know, merchandise or everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so going back to something where it's just like, let's watch Harrison Ford try to outwit, you know, some like ex-communists, you know, or some former like Soviet spies from some, where mm-hmm. like terrorists of some imaginary Eastern European nation or something. Um, I don't know. That seems <laughs> some sort of appeal. Well, Harrison Ford, you know, I, I'm somebody that looks at Harrison Ford and has a has a has a, almost a memory, not a memory. I have a I have a consciousness of him almost being the lead in Model Shop, right? So I, if I look at Harrison, I do look at Harrison Ford with this kind of historical. He could have been instead of instead of uh, Lockhart, the male lead in the film I love by Agnes Varda called Model Shop, and so I'm thinking about Harrison Ford hanging out with Agnes Varda. In '69 in California, so I see. I my perception of him includes information like that. So I don't. Right, and of course he was, you know, in like two of the big pop culture, 
you know, Lucas, George Lucas associated pop culture trilogies of the 70s and 80s. Um, but yeah, he was in a lot of, you know, all those Clear Britain Danger and Air Force One and Fugitive and movie, yeah, movies like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, that, so there's definitely, yeah, some interest in that. And I think it is in part a exhaustion with the CGI, you know, spectacular yeah. kind of kind of thing. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm never really, I've never been a believer in guilty pleasure. I think it's a bogus notion. I mean, your pleasure is mm-hmm. your pleasure. If you like something that's really poppy, maybe the thing that you love that's poppy is great. Maybe it's not junk. And maybe it's, it was just, maybe it was just circulated as junk because some critics said so, you know, and maybe there is virtue there. I don't know. I don't, I'm pretty open-minded in that sense, right? I sort of feel like these are all, I think all these things are up for grabs or up for, um, I don't know, reconsideration, right? It's kind of, it's kind of. Right. So, so Harold Bloom would not agree with this because he was, you know, very, right. <laughs> very much a snob and dismissed yeah. Harry Potter and other such things as Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. Um, and but Penny Dreadfuls, I don't think. Was, but, but as you know, Penny Dreadfuls was a genre of writing, of fiction. Right. So that, that in itself is interesting. But go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But. No, just that, yeah, yeah I mean, I, well, I think, you know, he may have been the last of that sort of critic that was trying to uphold. I mean, he wrote that the book, The Western Canon, where he yeah. said, <laughs> he, he decided what was and wasn't in the Western Canon. Yeah. But he, he was like a, fighting a losing battle at that point. And the way, you know, the stuff from the, um, you know, the ones that were considered, you know, junk for kids. Is yeah. now totally taken over the culture. I assume he was not a fan of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm, you know, interested in <laughs> surely interested in both high and low. Um, and I think it, it, it's just strangely the case that low, sort of like, I don't know, like the middle got hollowed out as yeah. like low culture completely took over at least in, in Hollywood. Um, well, that's it. Well, isn't that interesting? Cause you're seeing now, like my friend, Daniel Kramer, who I've had on my show is sending the praises of ordinary people, right? Like, well, people want to say apocalypse now is the great film, but ordinary people's is good. You know, this simple little Robert Redford film, you know, don't, don't dismiss ordinary people. Right. Is that kind of, what you mean? <laughs> there's a sense in which people reconsider things that are dismissed by critics or seen as less, Lightweight, maybe the lightweight thing is the real is the real is is is, is good is heavy, right? That kind of thing is kind of yeah. Yeah, and I think people just you know feel like you couldn't make a movie like Ordinary People today because it could if it would either have to be like a to, like a total indie or you know like a <laughs> you know that um, a twenty four something would put out. Yeah. Um, and they probably wouldn't even do it, or it, yeah. you know, it couldn't. It doesn't happen in superheroes or something. Some interesting stuff wouldn't do it. Um, right. Yeah, and I guess it would need to have some sort of like horror element or something for maybe an indie to, um, you know, to, to get involved because you know genre stuff is so popular right now. But yeah, just sort of normal, you know, normal stories about actual people. Yeah. There's not as many of them as there, as there were like 30 years ago. That's interesting. So, where do you see your show in in, in, in the cultural landscape? I mean, you 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 sit, you've taken it independent. I know you made an announcement about that. Do you want to talk about um, your decision to do that, or or, or what what uh, 
for sure. For those that don't know, because I'm actually an outsider, I don't really know. Was that what was was that a? Uh, we'll, we'll speak about that because I don't really know. Um, well, yeah. So, um, so the show started at Blogging Heads because I was an editor there, mm-hmm. and um, and started in 2015. So it was basically a seven year run, which considering podcasting is, you know, that you know maybe existed <laughs> like. 15 years or so, that's, that's a pretty long run in the podcast world. Um, but yeah, there, there were various reasons to take it independent. Um, um, some were sort of related to blogging heads' uh, resources, um, and some were related to um, uh, wanting to <laughs> try to monetize it in a way that I couldn't when it was still on that site, such that I could you know, uh, keep doing it and possibly pay my rent. That'd be nice. But, um, it, and yeah, and also the limitations that the blog is for it was continued to be both a, like a video thing where you can watch the episodes on YouTube, but mm-hmm. also being essentially still an audio podcast. Um, anyway, so the, the show is going to be at least in its initial reboot is going to be, just an audio podcast, like most other podcasts. It will, it will, I, there's a YouTube channel that is on, but for now, at least I think it will be just, you know, it'll just appear on YouTube as, as audio with like still images. Okay. Um, okay. Because yeah, there's, you know, YouTube has its own ecosystem of yeah people who host shows and stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm definitely not that type of, um, person who is often very high energy and is also very outrage driven, like, mm-hmm. you know, so, so-and-so destroys SJW college <laughs> or something yeah. like that's a very popular genre on YouTube. Um, so I'm going to just uh, keep the channel, the independent culturally determined channel going yeah, uh, because it, it's, you know, has a little bit of traction, but I, I think of the show more as, an audio podcast and so I can have lower overhead without the video component, which adds all these complications in terms of uh, things that can go wrong in the recording or just extra time to put the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was part of it too, that, uh, um, you know, Bob has Bob Wright who had a blog. He had co-founded it, you know, was an innovator in the video space and he remains committed to that. Whereas I thought the, at a certain point, the the video on the web was no longer a novel thing and wasn't adding a lot of <laughs> extra value mm-hmm. uh, because there are people who will sit in front of their screen and watch two people talk to each other for an hour. Yeah. But there's more people who will listen to a podcast as they're doing, the- you know, taking a walk or doing the dishes oh, yeah. or something. And I, I'm in total agreement. You got to have both. You have to have that flexibility, right? As you said, people. Taking the dog for a walk's important, and you know, kind of, it's all kind of a um, a new thing, right, on, out there in culture. Uh, right. So, what are your hopes and wishes going forward with culturally determined? Or what do you? What comes to your mind that you want to say to the audience here that you think is important? A movie that people need to see, or a book they need to read, or or something in your show that you? What's your next plan, or whatever comes to your mind? That you're, you know. Um. I. You know. I think. The, the show is going to be basically what it was before, which is a, a, a different guest each week, um, me asking questions. I mean, the 
the topics are still essentially going to be whatever interests me. Um, and you know, like I, I remember when I started the, when I started the show on blogging heads, I think I said something like, Oh, what are the topics, you know, asking the employees commenters, what are the topics you'd like to see covered? And, and yeah, there are more, more than one person says, I'm like, Oh, you should talk about jazz or something. But I, I don't know anything about jazz and don't have an interest in jazz. And, well, you know, I'm you can listen to NPR I'm, and I'm learn a lot about jazz. So yeah, I'm, I'm, that's all. Yeah, that would yeah, we wouldn't. Yeah, I'm all about jazz. You mean jazz and music? Yeah. So high. I mean high end jazz. You know, criticism about jazz. Like that's out there. I, like I can't. I'm not going to do that because I. I'm not the person for that. But okay. it, it, it's still going to continue to be my <laughs> reflecting my interests. Well, your, um, your last show was about you. Your most recent show I found fascinating. It was about a Tom Friedman column, right? about like, yeah. like Tom Friedman's column about, and I thought, well, that's kind of, everybody can relate to that because like the country's at stake, right? And democracy and like Liz, Liz Cheney and, and what was it? Joe Biden, Liz Cheney ticket. I thought, well, you know, yeah. Yeah. This is Paul Tom Friedman's thought would, experiment provocative column that, you know, Biden should dump Kamala Harris and take Liz Cheney as his running mate, um, sort of on the, using the recent Israeli coalition government uh -huh. that where it was just, Disparate parties who all hated Bibi Netanyahu got together. Um, yeah, yeah, he was using that. It was, I mean, it was definitely sort of intended to be provocative. provocative. And a lot of people online got very mad about it and were dunking on it. And people, you know, people on a certain section of Twitter right. hold Tom Freeman in utter contempt. And so I made sort of a half defense of the column, um, and essentially along the lines of. Like, oh, like, if Trump is a genuine threat to American democracy, which yeah. I think he, you know, he's more of than I would have thought a year ago. Yeah. Um, I thought, like, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like overboard, more or less, but, but he still, well, you know, he, he keeps on going and the GOP is going along with him. So does that mean that we do need some sort of grand coalition or, or something to oppose him? Yeah, that's, um, well, that's an important question because – because that's an existential question, right? So, yeah, we agree. You and I agree on that. But then I don't like Tom Freeman's conservatism and his neoliberalism historically. I read his, you know, I read his book, The, the Lexus and the Olive Tree. I read, I did not read it as a teenager, I read it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an adult, you know, as a, as a mm -hmm. and I didn't agree with it and don't like it, that everything associated with that. On the other hand, I might agree with him if he's trying to prevent fascism or pretend, prevent you know so it's 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 tricky right so it's kind of hard to i guess we sort of wrestle with this i mean i would like to see a, a kamala harris liz cheney um pairing who knows i don't know <laughs> who knows what uh where we go from here any ideas i don't, I don't know Do you, maybe um yeah i'm I, I don't know. I actually do. <laughs> I do think that Trump is not going to run. Um, oh. And I guess at this point that is, you know, not, not that's the contrarian take or something. And, you know, my essential read on Trump starting in 2015 and, you know, before that is <laughs> what I was just exposed to him as an entertainer was, you know, like a, a con artist. And um, he's gonna do whatever he can to what like keep, do. Yeah. keep the con going. And so I think he is probably happier being, you know, being in Florida, living on a in a country club, <laughs> having you know a sycophant applaud every time he enters a room, 
um, and, and being sort of this weird kingmaker type rather than actually having to like go to meetings and like have people try to explain things to him that he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now he gets to play golf as much as he wants. He gets to watch yeah. TV as much as he wants. You know, he probably, <laughs> he did a lot of that while he was president. Yeah. Um, but I, I think he sort of is done with the political, like that aspect of the political grift. And, you know, he has this, um, uh, startup company that's going to be like, uh, some version of Twitter or something that has this scam aspect with the, um, yeah. the investment vehicle that he put together for it. So like he can live off that sort of scam, you know, and, and he's an old man at this point. Um, and I think he's going to keep that sort of thing going or really start his own television network or something like that. Um, rather than actually run for president again, which is a lot of work and, you know, does require a lot of yeah. effort. And certainly he's an energetic person and just, he's like a weird mix of energetic and lazy, um, like intellectually lazy, but yeah. like sort of energizer buddy and his, um, you know, the, the inability to stop doing something. But I think he's got to, um, tease, tease the media and he wants attention for himself above yeah. anything else and then continue with sort of like medium level grifts and scams instead yeah. of this grand like scam that he managed to pull off by becoming elected president. Right. Well, there's grifts and there's scams and there's there's running the country as a grift and a scam and that's that's um, Mark, Marx's admonition about tragedy and farce Notwithstanding, maybe he, maybe Marx has it, maybe has it reversed. Maybe it's the first farts and then tragedy. Feels like <laughs> well, they, yeah, they definitely. I mean, up in, up until COVID, it was largely farcical, the, the Trump presidency, and then suddenly became much more tragic. Yeah, and but the you know the capital insurrection was both tragedy and farce at the same time. united, and I think more yeah. farce than tragedy. Oh, um, interesting, because of the ridiculousness of the entire thing oh, but um yeah that would i mean i and so another area where i sort of depart from some people on the left yeah is thinking that i don't know well there's, there's people who think that january 6th was you know like they could have like the mob could have actually overthrown democracy or something and i don't think that was likely but then there's also the people on the left who want to minimize it um, because it doesn't sort of fit into their Narrative. schema and they are afraid of, you know, a sort of new, um, you know, uh, like domestic terror law or something like that. So eventually I'm, I'm definitely clamp down on defense. And, I, that, well, that's a, that's infighting in the left and I'm definitely not on that side of the left. I sort of, I agree with Kamal Harris and it's like Pearl Harbor and it's like awful. So yeah, that's kind of, I'm showing, I guess my, my true colors, right? insane <laughs> right but it, it still had this it, i think it was serious but versatile it had this yeah. total absurd dumb aspect to it yeah. and it was all these people most of whom i think were like deeply confused and misled by the media they consume and, mm-hmm. and trump's lies yeah but uh, you know other people who were sort of just there to for like a happening or a being sort of thing or an experience or to take mm-hmm. selfies or to live stream or to you know become more popular online right and so it it was this cavalcade of morons and and jokers and some legit dangerous people yeah but um they couldn't have i mean i 
I've said this on the show, if, you know, why, why the Capitol Police are so poorly prepared for this is a legitimate, serious question. Oh, yeah. But if they had just, like, had three times as many people with, like, the actual helmets and shields and stuff and, like, proper gates, then the, the mob would have been repelled, I think, pretty easily. And, like, they could have just turned, like, fire hoses on them and they would have dispersed. So it has this very pathetic, stupid aspect to it in addition to the seriousness of it. So it, it fits with the whole, just that, like, everything with Trump, everything related to Trump is stupid and a farce and, like, the dumbest thing possible. It was a fitting, and in that way it was a fitting end to his, uh, to his term. Well, Ari, I really enjoyed this discussion a lot. And, again, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing your show and that your show's out there in the world. Um. Is there anything as we even good things come to an end? Is there anything you want to say in conclusion, or tell people about your show, or anything else that that uh, that? Um... Um, well, I uh, thank you for inviting me on. I, I appreciate it. Um, usually on my show, I'm not talking as much as I talk to this episode. Usually, I'm playing the That's... you know host interlocutor role, and I'm trying to have the guests talk much more than I do. Um, Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's, the show is culturally determined, uh, you know, find it in your podcast feed. It's also on YouTube and it's in a brief hiatus now while I get things ready for, to relaunch it Excellent. independently. Excellent. Um, but yeah, so it's an interview show about culture and politics and, um, trying to find interesting stuff to talk about. Um, and so hopefully I'm going to have coming up, um, uh, Dana Stevens from Slate on who has a new sort of cultural biography of Buster Keaton. Oh, wow. um, that just oh, was published a week ago. And oh, I got to hear this. That's int- that's fascinating. So already, yeah, that's, the, a, that's a great out the gate. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I it's not recorded yet, but I hope that will be one of the one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm aiming to have it more or less, be more or less weekly. Um, the last year I did. Of, of about 40 or so episodes. Um, and um, I think I can keep close to a weekly schedule. So that, that would be the goal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's, it's also always been on the blogging platform, you know, free and without ads. So it's sort of finally time to um, make this thing self-sustaining in some way. Yep. So there'll, there'll be some sort of Patreon type thing. I still haven't figured that out entirely, but yep. um, trying to hopefully it. it'll be... Yeah. Yeah. Something where people who want to, you know, put a little money to get the bonus content or something, they can they can do that as well. Well, I'm thinking I might tell our uh, this episode of the wisdom of the introvert. Uh, how would you feel about about that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I mean, the um, it's a common thing these days. Talk about yourself, introvert, extrovert, ambivert. I don't know if you've heard that term. That's yep. people who see themselves as, as both. Um, and I still sort of think I am a naturally introverted person, but when you're, you know, hosting a podcast, you have to put yourself out there a little bit more. So I've, I've moved more towards extroverted and having more confidence in, you know, talking off the cuff and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if, um, if I'm, if the introverts would claim me still, um, because maybe those, that type of person would, you know, assign just, Reading, you know, reading a book and, uh, right. and 
and and so forth. So yeah, I'm, I'm more towards the middle now than than I used to be. But um, but I do, yeah, I do definitely try to on the show to you know listen and mm-hmm. get. It's, it's not always people who. I, I, it's not a show where I'm aiming to like debate and argue, no. but if I'm not looking for like a hallelujah chorus kind of thing either, and if there's someone who has an argument where there's parts that I agree with, parts that I disagree with, that's mm-hmm. maybe most interesting to me. Um, but I do, yeah, I also do, I don't know, want to have more people on who are more on the right or something, um, right. <laughs> who I think are, uh, you know, who um, whose work I respect and aren't part of the, you know, conservative entertainment complex that yeah. we have out there. Um yeah, so those are those are some goals, and yeah, and sometimes I'll just do weird one-off episodes, like about, you know, um, I did an episode with the writer Kenny Baker, who wrote this piece about uh, Nickelodeon in the late '80s and early '90s, oh, yes. and yeah, um, yeah, just sort of that was weird like, cultural things that that's that interest me that have no, you know, <laughs> don't have anything to do with what's happening, like in the the main the main part of of public life. Well, I think it all matters, and I really appreciate your approach, and that's why you're on the show. And I, I want you. I hope you can keep doing what you're doing already, because I like it. And um, well, thank thank you very much. I appreciate it. I guess I should plug. I always, you know, at the end of the podcast, you're always supposed to plug, and I, I feel sort of like, it, you know, it's like the, you're crossing the finish line or something. I'm exhausted, and, <laughs> and then it's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to plug everything. Yeah. So culturally determined is the name of the yep. podcast. I'm on. Twitter, that would be the same place to find me otherwise. And it's A-R-Y-E-H-C-W, yes. uh, one word, on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, so follow me there if, if you're interested. Well, thank you, Ari. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Thank you.